0: Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, People die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff... To Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29 year old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shove from Lug South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. Hey. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. The district attorney called it one of the most horrific cases of child abuse ever seen in Fulton County. When five-year-old Terrell Peterson was pronounced dead in 1998 at Hughes Spalding Children's Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, doctors examined a thin, frail body, battered and bruised, scarred and malnourished his head showed signs of blunt force trauma, indicating that he may have been killed by a blow to his head. Who would kill a five-year-old boy? Who in George's child protection system would think it is okay to let him slip through the cracks and then cover up the truth of the matter? Obviously, this is the handiwork of human monsters. Terrell Peterson was murdered by relatives in their apartment in southwest Atlanta, Georgia, in January of 1998. It was the brutal end to the grim life of a child for whom happiness was only a fleeting experience in his infancy. Reportedly, he was always laughing, getting into everything, and loved to blow spit bubbles. Terrell's grandmother and aunt and the aunt's boyfriend were charged with killing him, If only the tortures Terrell endured had ended with his relatives. The public would be shocked to find out that responsibility for this tragedy also fell on the shoulders of the government agencies that have been charged with caring for vulnerable children like Terrell. Initially, the public was barred from hearing about this just as the public is prevented from knowing how hundreds of other children have died after coming to the attention of the child protection system. In Georgia, as in many other areas in the United States, details of child protection cases and the outcomes and the lives of children like Terrell are guarded with a level of secrecy typical of matters of national security. Confidentiality laws designed to encourage citizens to report child abuse, also shield child protection agencies from public scrutiny and accountability. Upon receipt of dozens of reports of abuse and neglect, dozens of government, hospital, and criminal justice workers dropped in and out of Terrell's life with minimal effect. Their actions have been concealed in records that were only released publicly as a result of a court petition filed by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The records reveal tale of torture and death that was preventable. The investigations by the Fulton County Department of Family and Child Services in addressing seven complaints that Terrell and his two siblings were victims of neglect and abuse were poorly handled. Hospital staff did not alert child protection workers when Terrell presented with third-degree burns. Terrell informed authorities a year before his death that his grandmother beat him, but a judge dismissed criminal charges against her when no one brought the child to court. And in the end, they reveal government agency whose highest officials told the public they had done everything possible to save Terrell, despite two state internal investigations that had found otherwise. Child welfare officials later remarked that they could not comment on Terrell's case for fear of being sued in a wrongful death case. Joyce Goldberg, a former spokeswoman for the Georgia Division of Family and Child Services, defended the child welfare agency insisting the state gives first-rate care to the vast majority of children needing its help, but she acknowledged cases like Terrell's hurt the agency's credibility. To quote Goldberg from a newspaper interview, When something like this happens, your readers might readily jump to the conclusion that all cases are handled this way, and then are covered up, and I don't think that's true. Goldberg later became the Director of Communications for Georgia's new Department of Community Health. A Life Steeped in Drugs Terrell was remembered for being good-natured and bright, as his mother once dubbed him, Bad and Sweet. This was before she abandoned him for drugs. Terrell's life was steeped in drugs. When he was born in 1992, Doctors found cocaine in his blood. His mother was reportedly addicted to crack. According to state records, seven times between 1991 and 1995, Fulton County Department of Family and Children's Services, or DFACS, received reports about the apparent neglect of Terrell or his siblings, which included May 1992, His mother took drugs while pregnant and used food stamps and welfare checks to buy crack. August 1993, the parents locked the children in the bedroom on weekends. The children did not receive food and water. February 1994, Terrell's mother was doing drugs. The children were unsupervised. January 1995, children begged neighbors for food. His mother was using cocaine on a daily basis. November 1995. His mother is addicted to crack. She leaves the children with her ailing maternal grandmother. Despite these reported incidents, Terrell's mother retained custody. Under the privacy laws that protect child abuse records, not even the people who filed the reports were permitted to know what the Child Welfare Agency was doing to remedy the situation. They didn't do much according to the findings of an internal investigation by the state. Throughout the family's history of involvement with the Fulton Child Welfare Agency, 11 caseworkers, overseen by 10 supervisors, handled the complaints. The investigation found that many caseworkers violated internal guidelines for investigating abuse and neglect reports. For instance, as standard protocol, drug tests were required for the parents, especially since most of the complaints were drug-related. They never ran checks on criminal histories, even though there were clear indications of a history of illicit behavior. Some caseworkers never met and interviewed the children, even though Terrell and his siblings were old enough to engage with them verbally. They often failed to obtain relevant medical records, and they seldom checked with witnesses and others who may have witnessed the abuse or been privy to it indirectly. The only sign of progress came in June 1996, when, as a response to the ongoing complaints, the Child Welfare Agency pressured the mother to sign over guardianship of the children to their paternal grandmother, Farina Peterson, then 48, Unfortunately, Terrell didn't fare much better in his grandmother's care. Though there are no details to highlight specific dates and isolated incidents of abuse, the circumstances of this arrangement imply that Terrell suffered physical abuse within six months of moving in with his grandmother. Suspicions were confirmed on December 3, 1996, when an eighth complaint came into the Fulton Department of Family and Children's Services. This report involved physical abuse rather than neglect. According to police and medical records, several days earlier on Thanksgiving Day, four-year-old Terrell was taken by ambulance to Hughes Spalding Hospital after his mother said she found him covered with bruises. Terrell had been staying with her at the time. Experts on the case say that what happened next may have offered the best chance to make a difference in Terrell's life, but it became a missed opportunity. Upon arrival at the hospital, Atlanta police investigator A.C. Booker was dispatched to the emergency room. He was informed by a doctor that the child was clearly a victim of long-term physical abuse. To quote Booker, As I looked at little Terrell's body, most of his injuries was old. However, he had marks, scars, and lacerations about his body. His injuries included right forehead and ear badly scarred, mark pattern, buttocks swollen and tender, reddish, lower back marked, and left forearm. Terrell reported to Booker that his grandmother had beaten him with a belt and sometimes with a shoe. According to the police report, he said he received the latest beating, quote, because he urinated in his clothes. The attendant doctor also noted the extent of Terrell's fresh and old injuries and diagnosed him with battered child syndrome. To quote the doctor from his notes, the patient said that his paternal grandmother did it. When the doctor asked how, the little boy said his grandmother had hit him with a white shoe and two belts and he held up two fingers to show what he meant. That night, Terrell's grandmother, Farina Peterson, was charged by Atlanta police with reckless conduct, a misdemeanor, for the beating of her grandson. She was ordered to appear in Atlanta Municipal Court the following week to face the charge. After taking photos of the child's injuries, police released Terrell in his mother's custody. She was expressly instructed to keep Terrell away from his grandmother. Once again, Terrell's case fell through the cracks, this time in court. Due to findings in the state's investigation, the Fulton County Child Protection Services worker failed to show up at Peterson's court hearing with Terrell, and on December 10th, Judge Katherine Malicki dismissed the charge. The reason was stamped in bold black letters on the arrest citation, «Victim not in court». The legal system of Fulton County was eager to wipe their hands of the case. Both the judge and the prosecutor claimed to have completely forgotten it ever happened. Court transcripts from that year had been disposed of. The prosecuting attorney remarked that it appeared no one else involved in the case was in the courtroom that day. To quote Darrell Kimbrell, a former assistant solicitor, DFACS should have had the kid in court. Or someone from DFACS should have been in court. Experts on the case noted a breakdown in communication. To quote Fulton County Prosecutor Suzanne Ockleberry, that was one of the most depressing cases I ever saw, because I think if someone had intervened, that child would still be alive. According to records, Terrell was back in his grandmother's custody the day after she was arrested. Child welfare agents closed his case Once the criminal charge was dropped, his grandmother told the caseworker she did not abuse Terrell and that his injuries were, quote, from him falling, fighting at school, etc. In a subsequent investigation, the state discovered that the caseworker never consulted the police report, never interviewed Terrell or his siblings, Never talked to the doctor, never examined medical records, and never spoke to Terrell's Head Start teacher to verify whether the child fell or fought a lot in school. Instead, she believed everything the grandmother told her. As for Terrell's conduct at school, a teacher discovered Terrell rummaging through a garbage can in search of food one day. This occurred the day before the Thanksgiving beating that sent him to the hospital and led to his diagnosis of battered child syndrome. His teachers were instructed by Farina Peterson to feed Terrell less frequently, for fear he would defecate on the floor. Speaking of defecation, Farina once forced Terrell to eat feces out of the toilet as punishment for an unnamed transgression. In a trial, Prosecutor David Cook Asked Tasha Peterson about Farina's rule against flushing the toilet. Because that's where he was supposed to eat, I guess, Tasha said of Terrell. Were they making him eat feces, Cooked asked? Yes, Tasha said. Tasha said Terry Peterson smacked Terrell on the head when he balked at eating the waste. She went on to say she would make him pick it up and eat it. This may have marked the end of his grandmother's troubles, but Terrell's suffering was far from over. When he returned to class, the teacher noticed something odd about the way he walked. When she removed his sneakers and socks, she discovered that the flesh of both the soles of his feet had been burned off. His feet were raw. Allegedly, this was inflicted by Farina Peterson as retaliation for reporting the previous assaults to the authorities. On December 28th, Terrell was taken to Hughes Spalding Hospital once again. One expert said this should have raised immediate suspicion. His grandmother told doctors Terrell had burned his feet the week before by standing on a space heater grate. She claimed she had been treating the burns herself, but his left foot had become infected, medical records show. Terrell was admitted to the hospital. He underwent a grafting procedure with skin transferred from his hip. There is no record of hospital staff reporting the incident to a child welfare agency. They should have. The severity of the burn was not typical of the source of the affliction, and doctors should have viewed his grandmother's explanation with suspicion. To quote Dr. Randall Alexander, director of the Center for Child Abuse at Morehouse School of Medicine, I have a problem with that story. If it's going to be hot, you're going to jump off it as fast as you can. A four-year-old is going to get off it. One year later, Terrell was brought to the hospital for the last time. On the evening of January 15, 1998, staff intervened as Terrell was in the throes of cardiac arrest. At 10.55 p.m., he was pronounced dead. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep Podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep Podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention And then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom... that were concerning to us on day one who would want to kill their mother and their little sister there is no boogeyman here it is exactly who we think it is i'm peter Van sat from 48 hours this is blood is thicker the hargan family killings listen to blood is thicker the hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts terrell's aunt 29 year old terry lynn peterson told police she had been feeding him at 9 p.m. when he told her he was tired and soon stopped breathing. She was unable to explain the abrasions, bruises, and fresh blood on the child. An autopsy conducted the next morning determined Terrell had died from abuse suffered over a long period of time. He was starved to the brink of death. At the time of the autopsy, he weighed 29 pounds. The attendant physician contacted the police because Terrell displayed the worst symptoms of child abuse that the physician had seen. Terrell had a recurring pattern of abrasions from the back of his head to the bottom of his feet, which indicated that a telephone cord, belt, and dog collar were used to beat him for as much as a year prior to his death. Bruises and scars covered his face in varying hues of purple, depending on the age of the wounds. Ligature marks encircled his wrists, and Terrell's DNA was found on a pair of pantyhose used to bind him, as well as on a belt and dog collar. Swollen lips and lacerations to the mouth revealed that someone had fed him aggressively. Scarring to the mouth indicated repeated forceful feeding. The medical examiner determined Terrell's death to be a homicide from chronic and acute abuse with recent and remote blunt impact injuries to the head, trunk, and extremities. To quote lawyer Don Keenan, who sued the state of Georgia on Terrell's behalf, Thank God he was dead. I think anybody who would have known or understood what this little guy was going through would rejoice in his death. Throughout the course of the homicide investigation, police learned that Terrell had frequently been physically restrained with pantyhose tied to a banister in the apartment. This was reported by another child who lived in the home, stating that Tasha Peterson tied Terrell up in this manner on a regular basis. The police found a letter of written instructions on how to care for Terrell. To quote the letter, "...he gets a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast, lunch he gets grits, and dinner he gets grits. His hands are always tied." Farina, Tasha, and Tommy told the police that Terrell slept on a pallet in the hallway and was tied up when he was bad, and Peterson said that he was always bad. In the homicide trial, Tasha testified that Peterson whipped Terrell with an extension cord and hit him with her hand, and that she ordered Tasha and Tommy to beat Terrell. Farina fed Terrell roughly with a large spoon, Peterson abused Terrell because she believed that he was not actually her nephew, but had been fathered by someone else other than her brother. Soon after Terrell's death, the State Division of Family and Children's Services initiated an internal investigation to see whether Fulton caseworkers and staff had followed agency protocol. In a letter dated February 11, 1998, Sarah Brownlee, then head of social services for the state, told the agency's top Fulton Administrator that they had not. The caseworkers handled only one of the first seven complaints properly. She wrote to Ralph Mitchell, the Fulton agency head. She criticized his agency's failure to enforce safety plans for the children, to investigate complaints adequately and promptly, and to verify all claims. Brownlee's primary criticism focused on the agency's response to the 1996 abuse charge that prompted the arrest of Terrell's grandmother. She noted several errors in policy and practice, including the failure to interview both the victim and the children, the failure to go to court, the failure to conduct a proper investigation. To quote from the internal investigation, a four-year-old whipped with a belt on his buttocks, back, and face has been seriously abused by an adult who was clearly out of control. The court record obtained after the child's death states that the case was dismissed because the victim was not in court. Why wasn't the caseworker in court? According to her review, the Fulton Child Welfare Agency failed its fundamental mandate to, quote, protect the child from further harm. She also directed Mitchell to outline within two weeks the action plan he would implement to prevent a similar tragedy. His response was to issue letters of reprimand to four staff members and send copies to the state. State officials received no other response. Soon after Terrell's death, child fatality review teams met regularly to analyze his death and determine whether it could have been prevented. In Fulton County, members included representatives of the medical examiner, district attorney, police, juvenile court, public health, and the Department of Family and Children's Services. They determined that Terrell's death was definitely preventable. The group discovered that a system-wide failure involving the courts, the child welfare agency, the police, and the hospital had contributed to Terrell's death. To quote Don Keenan, this isn't about falling through the cracks. This is about falling through the crater. Keenan subpoenaed state records in preparation for a lawsuit in his efforts to force the state to reform its child protection system. In May 1998, a Fulton grand jury indicted Terrell's grandmother, her daughter, Terry Lynn, and her daughter's boyfriend, Calvin Pittman, 22, for felony murder, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, and cruelty to children. Neighbors of the women were said to have been shocked by the allegations, and many spoke highly of the two women. Paul Howard, the Fulton County District Attorney, said the Peterson women should be sentenced to death if convicted. He announced he would seek the death penalty for the grandmother. Over a year after Trell's death, the failures of the child welfare system were exposed. They were shielded from public view to maintain the reputations of the officials involved. Soon after the indictments, the public and the media received very different accounts of the events that occurred around Terrell's death. In June 1998, Fulton County Commission Chairman Mitch Skandakalis called for Mitchell's resignation, citing Terrell's death as another example of his agency's failure to protect children. In response, Mitchell's office issued a news release on June 3rd, calling Terrell's death tragic, but one the agency could not have prevented. The release said investigations at the state and local levels concluded that the agency had handled the child's case properly. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution quoted Sharika Orsorio, public relations manager for the Fulton Child Welfare Agency, as saying, This case has been extensively reviewed since the child's death by county and state officials, and all policies and procedures were followed. A day later, Mitchell sent a memo to Peg Peters, director of the State Division of Family and Children's Services, that acknowledged the public statement was inaccurate. To quote Mitchell, Fortunately, there have been no further calls from the media to follow up or contest the information contained in the statement. In an interview, Mitchell at first said he didn't recall how they had made the erroneous statement in the news release, then changed his position to say the caseworker had given them false information. He said they'd based the release on what she told them. This despite the fact that he'd already received the state's scathing review. His agency had already officially responded by issuing reprimands to their staff. When probed further, Mitchell would not comment. Neither the county nor the state ever corrected the public statement. Mitchell and Osorio said they assumed Peter's office would issue a correction. Peter said that would have been Mitchell's responsibility. Goldberg, the former spokeswoman for the state agency, said there was no action of any kind. To quote Goldberg, "...our policy has been to be forthright, to never deliberately distort information." So it was a violation of that principle, and I was upset. It was especially upsetting because it was a particularly egregious case. Of all the people who knew the truth about Terrell's story, state officials, county officials, members of the child fatality review team, no one spoke up to set the record straight. All say confidentiality laws prevent them from saying anything. Terrell's half-brother and sister were placed in foster care. Terrell Peterson's story ended at the end of a dirt road in Randolph County, Georgia, 170 miles south of Atlanta, where he was buried in a small country cemetery. Two old potted plants toppled over near an oak tree that hangs over a small patch of red clay. They are the remnants of tributes paid to those buried in the Mitchell Grove Baptist Church Cemetery. There are no visitors to Terrell's grave. No mourners marked his passing, according to Susie Crowell, a member of the church who knows some of Terrell's relatives. He's buried in the family plot near the grave of Thomas Mitchell. Crowell says Terrell was buried in haste one day by some people who came down from Atlanta. The deacon happened to come upon them as they laid him in the ground. To quote Crowell, they just dug a hole and buried him. In January 1999, 60 Minutes 2 aired a segment about Terrell's case, exposing both the abuse he suffered and the failures of Georgia's child protection system. More than 800 children whose cases were examined by the Georgia Department of Human Services or DHS, Division of Family and Children's Services, DFCS, between 1995 and 1998, died. Soon after the 60 Minutes 2 story aired, then-Governor Roy Barnes set up the Child Advocate Office. This office had the authority to bypass the state's confidentiality laws and independently investigate abuse cases handled by the Department of Family and Children's Services. The state took further action by passing the Terrell-Peterson Act. This legislation gives doctors the authority to take temporary custody of battered children at a hospital without obtaining department approval. Aftermath. Farina Peterson received a life sentence for her role in Terrell's death. In December 2002, Terry Lynn Peterson, Terrell's aunt, was found guilty of murder and received a life sentence. Ralph Mitchell, the government official who covered up the poor handling of the case and wrote the erroneous press release, retired with a state pension. Catherine E. Molecki, who dismissed charges against Farina Peterson because Terrell did not appear in court, is still a municipal court judge in Atlanta. Thank you very much for listening. Please like our Facebook page. This has been Human Monsters. Bye for now.